If you've been coming to Docs of Church the last several weeks, we've been going through the book of Galatians. And so uh, I'm here to continue on our series. And today we're going to be picking up in Galatians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can begin to turn there and you can meet me there. Uh, Rudy last week kind of opened us up in the first couple of verses there, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2. And this week we're going to be finishing out that chapter as we go through verses 11 through 21. And as you're turning there, I, I want to kind of share something with you guys, okay? One of the earliest lessons I learned in my life growing up was, was this right here. Actions speak louder than words. <laughs> was this a lesson that you guys learned in your life? <laughs> Maybe it's something that you're learning right now. Maybe it's something you learned when you were growing up too. But here's the thing. Hey, I'm from the state of Missouri. Okay, anybody know anything about the state of Missouri? Maybe Kansas City, Kansas City Chiefs, last weekend, right? Super Bowl champs, 2024. You can't tell me there's Niners fans in here. Come on, man. This is Wisconsin. This is Wisconsin. But hey, I'm I'm from Missouri, okay? And and I remember growing up, one of the things that I learned about the state of Missouri was our state motto, right? This is something to help you out in trivia. Next time you go on a trivia night, the state motto for Missouri is, is, is show me. The state of Missouri is the show me state. But I remember once my friends and I, we got a hold of this knowledge, like I, it, was, it was really over for everybody in my friend group. Why? Because long gone now are the days when you could like speak hyperbolic things, when you could exaggerate the things that you could do, the things that you want to do in your life, right? Long gone are the days of lying now because you could hardly get anything out of your mouth before one of us in our little like preteen voices would just shout out, hey, show me. You couldn't say anything. Show me was the thing that would come out of our mouths if we heard people say, hey, I could do this, or I want to do that, or I've done this. It's like, yeah, right, hey, show me. So it didn't matter if it was true or not. We wanted some cold stone evidence. So the older I get, I realize the more nostalgic I get. I was reflecting on this, right? It had me thinking about this principle that actions do speak louder than words. What you believe and what you say is really important, but what you do is at least just as important. And we can apply this to the gospel as we get into the text this morning too, right? This this, this idea is, is real, that what you believe and what you say about the gospel is really important, but what you do at the very least is just as important. See, the Christian life isn't just about this intellectual and this individual ascent, but it's about convicted hearts and life transformation. And what's true about the Christian, we need to know this, is that when we place our faith in Christ, is that there is something that becomes fundamentally different about us. We have a new identity, which means if you're new to that idea, it's it's exactly what it sounds like. We are in a very real sense no longer the person that we once were. We are a new creation. We no longer operate according to the values of the world, but we operate according to the values of the kingdom with the help and the prodding and the correction of the Holy Spirit. And we inevitably become Christ's representatives. See, as we live our lives, our lives begin to tell a story. It's letting ourselves and even the people around us know what we truly believe and think about God. Through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions, the other day, I had a chance to make this point about, about discipleship 
And I was reminded by this quote of a pastor I appreciate who's like this discipleship guru. And, and here's what he says about discipleship. He says, if you're a believer in Christ, it's not a matter of if you're making disciples. It's a matter of what type of disciples you are making. So he's getting to this point that being a disciple is actually not optional for the Christian. There's literally no distinction between disciple and Christian in the scriptures. Like if you are a Christian, then disciple is now your title. And if you are a disciple, then making disciples is your function. And so the question is, or is not, am I making disciples? But it is, what kind of disciples am I making? And maybe you're like, well, hey, I don't really spend time with people long enough to talk about the things of Jesus, so I don't know if I'm really making any disciples or not. Well, here's what we need to know. The reality is you don't have to really say much of anything. Your life and your actions are actually doing some of the loudest speaking. See, our actions speak louder than our words. And I bring this up, y'all, because this is the kind of dilemma that we're going to actually see in our text this morning. Paul, who's the author of this letter to Galatia, will let us in on a story of him and Peter, the beloved apostle, right, who, who knows the gospel and who believes the gospel, and he has even been a preacher of the gospel, but he falls into a sin in a way that denies the very fabric of the gospel that he loves. And it not only affects him, but it affects many of the well-meaning people who are with him. His actions are speaking louder than his words. And so I'm going to unpack really the text in two ways. Peter's sin that we're going to see here in the first several verses, and then we're going to see Paul's response to Peter's sin. And at the end, I want to kind of apply some of these things that we're seeing here to our lives and see what this means for us. So if you have your Bibles open, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, I'm going to start reading. It says this. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And before we move on, we, we need to know something. We need to unpack something, okay? There's a significance to what Paul is trying to unpack. First of all, there's the significance of Antioch. Antioch was this town, okay? It's not like Jerusalem. It was Antioch. It wasn't primarily Jew. It was primarily Gentile. And this was the place, if you look back in the book of Acts, you can go to Acts chapter 11. I love this chapter. It shows us that this is where this guy named Barnabas, who was Paul's associate, and Paul had come, and they saw these people gathering around, and it was the first time that Jew and Gentile were together in the same place of worship. And it was actually, if you read that chapter, the first time that the group of people worshiping Jesus were called Christians. Y'all, to this point, there had been Pentecostal, or the Pentecost had happened, <laughs> Peter had given his keynote address. Stephen had been stoned. The gospel had been going forth. But yet we still don't hear the word Christian until this moment when finally there was this element of this diverse family gathering together, worshiping Jesus. And the word even came from the outside. They didn't even coin it themselves. People looked in and saw this group and said, who are these people worshiping together? And they gave them this name, Christian. Secondly, is the significance of the eating with the Gentiles. See, we have to know that for a Jew to share a table with a Gentile in this day would have been unbelievable. 
Like they would have thought that sharing a meal with someone carried this profound message that you not only liked this person, but you were in full fellowship with them, that you were in full acceptance of this person. Like the table in this time and day had this sense of relational intimacy. And if we're honest, it kind of still does today. But the tension in the text is that Jews had a terrible view of the Gentiles. And if I'm honest, like I, I couldn't blame them. If you look through the history, there's been a history of subjugation and conquering against the Jews. There were constant warnings in the Old Testament to distance themselves because of Gentile idol worship. Like Jews would even go on to, to talk about the Gentiles and they would call them names like Jews. They would call them things like unclean. They would call them things like dirty. But y'all, here's the thing. The beauty of God's plan is that even in the midst of this, his desire wasn't that the Gentiles be forever cast out or forgotten, but that they come to know and trust in him and become a part of his family through repentance, belief, and redemption through his son, Jesus. This is good news for us in here this morning. And so as we see this fellowshipping at the table, Peter with the Gentiles, we start to see this happening. And while it lasted, it was this beautiful demonstration of the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ. Look at verse 2. But when they came, he, Peter, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, now we're getting to the good part. You see, in every good story, there's a problem responsible for the action. And y'all, here's the problem for us in our text today. Stated like this, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, and now he's not eating with the Gentiles. And at face value, you'd be thinking, okay, hey, hey, what's the big deal with that? Like, is this junior high? <laughs> like, what does it matter who he's eating with? And those who know, like, junior high, that was a big deal, right? Going into the cafeteria, that was actually important. Who are you going to sit with at the table? Hey, I don't want to undermine that. But the importance here isn't so much who he's eating with as much as why he's eating with them. And the text tells us that the reason he backs away from the table with the Gentiles is because of fear from a different group of people who've come to visit. Verse 12 calls these people the men from James. See, these were the men who were at the epicenter of what it meant to be a Jew, even a Jew who now believed in Jesus. These were men who believed in the life of Jesus. They believed in the death of Jesus. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. But they also believed there's other things that you have to do to truly be in. There were some other things that had to be true about you. You had to be circumcised. You had to eat kosher laws. You had to follow these rules. You had to observe these holidays. You had to follow these traditions. And they came, and you can kind of feel the palpable authority in the text. And they were operating as these gatekeepers of what it truly meant to be with Jesus. And part of Peter's story is that Peter at one point believed this too. But there were some events in his life that you can read about in Acts 15 and Acts 10 that changed his mind. And so Paul, as he's coming to confront Peter to his face, he's not coming to him to condemn him or tell him something that he doesn't know, but to call him to act according to what he already does know. And so we see Paul calling him out for mainly two reasons. They're going to come up on the screen. The first reason is this, is that Peter knew better. Like Peter knew. As Peter is backing away from this table, he knew exactly what he was doing. He had already had an encounter with God to show that this relationship with Jews and Gentiles that was forming was something that was under God's authority. 
He knew about this already. God in Acts 10 brought down a sheet of unclean animals, showed it to Peter in a vision and said, hey, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, no, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. Peter had to be shown that vision three times before he got the memo. But the reality was God wasn't just showing that he can eat any kind of animal that he wanted. He was trying to show him something about people. That not only are the foods not unclean anymore, but the people associated with them are no longer unclean. Peter knew. Secondly, Peter's actions lied about Jesus. See, this is the most important thing for us to unpack today, I think. See, because Peter by backing away from the table, is communicating something fundamentally false about Jesus, namely that there's two bodies of Christ, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. So Lord willing, in about a year and a half, my wife, my family, and I will be moving to Milwaukee and we'll be planning a, a, a church there. And as I've been meeting with some people from that city, Prominently, like some community members there, some pastors in that area, one of the main issues that keeps coming up and rising up in conversation is this issue of division in that city. See, those of you who know, we're just right down the street, so this probably isn't news to you. Milwaukee is one of the most dense and diverse cities in this country, but it's also the most segregated city in this country. As I'm hearing these conversations, it's not only evident in the community right? Like redlining has run rampant in that city over the years. Segregation is the norm in that city over the years. But it's not just in the community. The pastors will tell you that it's also in their churches. You know, the other week I had a chance to meet with some pastors around the area to get a a, a gauge on that city. About 50 to 60 of us pastors went into this room and we were talking about what does it look like to come together to serve this city. And I remember one of the pastors that was there that I'm good friends with, I asked him after the conference, I said, hey, just curious, how many pastors in that room do you think are pastoring or have a desire to pastor an ethnically diverse church? He said, four. And I was one of them, right? And, and I, I don't count because I'm not there yet. And so it's, it's, it's four. And 60 pastors, if you think about that, that's just a small sample size of the city of Milwaukee. And so if we just take that to scale, humor me here for a moment, that's 8 out of 120 churches. That's 16 out of 180 churches. And that's really generous because we know there aren't 16 multi-ethnic churches in Milwaukee or really in any major city. See, in the 1960s, MLK Jr. had this quote that said, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And as we look at the landscape of 2024, I am burdened to say, honestly, not much has changed. There's this pastor out in North Carolina named Brian Loritz. He's known for adding to this quote, and he says, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America because 5 p.m. every other day of the week is also segregated. He's saying our worship spaces have a hard time reflecting the diversity of our communities. Why? Because our dinner tables don't reflect the diversity of our communities. See, for us, we don't really experience this Jew-Gentile divide, and honestly, we won't be held responsible for that, but we will be held responsible for the other divides we create in our lives in the churches right now. 
Listen, I'm not saying, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there's this one-to-one comparison between the Jew, Gentile, and our racial and other divisions here we experience today. But I am making an argument from greater to lesser that if we are, actually, that we are actually slapping Jesus in the face when we say and we believe and we act as if he can bridge the gap between death and life and bridge the gap between earth and eternity and Jew and Gentile, but he can't bridge the gap between the races in America or our cultural preferences, or our political preferences, or our worship music preferences. Y'all, how silly. And when we let these things win out in our lives, we are essentially rebuilding what Christ had already torn down. And we may say, hey, we believe in what Rudy called last week the preserved gospel but at the same time be resurrecting new and old walls of hostility, functionally acting like we believe in a preferred gospel. And we follow in Peter's air, essentially saying there are two or three or maybe even four bodies of Christ, however many we need to fit our preferences. But that's so problematic, and it's problematic for this one reason right here, is that there's only one body of Christ. Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6 tell us this, there is one body and there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, Peter knew this, and Paul is confronting him, and he's calling him back to this truth for his sake, but not only that, for our sake too, and even for the sake of the future church. See, these men from James came to Antioch. They get in Peter's head, and Peter caves to this peer pressure. Look at verse 13. It says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Y'all, to this point, we don't know if Peter's actually said anything. But we know that he's done something. His actions are speaking louder than his words. And y'all, we got to know, this is the domino effect of a fallen leader. A compromised leader has so much sway that they can even get some of the most solid and faithful people to take the plunge with them. And in this text, we see that Barnabas even takes this fall. You know, we got to know the kind of dude Barnabas is. Barnabas is this loyal and this trusty dude. Like, like Barnabas is that friend you had when you were young where you would be like, yo, hey, mom, we want to go to the mall. And your mom's like, no. Hey, but Barnabas is coming. Okay, y'all can go. <laughs> right? This was the type of dude Barnabas was. He was loyal. He was trusty. He was honest. Not only that, yo, Barnabas wasn't even from the area. He was from Cyprus off the north shore of Africa. Not a prominently Jewish area. He was a Jew, but it was a prominently Gentile area. So he was from around the way. He had already been around the boys. And they're here in Antioch. And even he gets persuaded by the actions of Peter as a compromised leader. See, this was the effect of Peter's sin. Let's see Paul's response. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So now I don't know about y'all, but this verse makes my hair on the back of my neck stand up. Like Paul is furious right here. 
Right, I'm making a note in my journal right now. Okay, don't tick off Paul when I get to heaven, right? I want us to see the point that Paul is trying to make about Peter's actions. Look at this. He's saying that Peter's actions are out of step with the gospel. If you've read this verse before, have you ever wondered, like, all the other different things Paul could have said right here in this moment, all the things he could have documented right here. He could have said, hey, but when I saw that your conduct was not very nice, or hey, but when I saw your conduct was not really loving your neighbor well, those would have been cool and sufficient, sufficient things to say. But no, he goes a step further. He looks at Peter's actions, and he doesn't appeal to his morality, and he doesn't appeal to his spirituality, and says, man, he says, you're out of step with the gospel, He's saying the divisions that he was causing in that moment were literally anti-Christian. They were anti-Christ. He was denying by his actions this truth on the basis of Jesus Christ's death and the resurrection. Jews and Gentiles who believe are accepted equally before God. He was acting against his own convictions. He already knew. He was betraying Christian liberty. He was casting a slur on his fellow believers. See, everything that Paul was laying out an argument against in chapter 1 through chapter 2, 1 through 10, Peter was doing textbook right here in chapter 2, 11 through 14. Denying the grace of Christ, check. Deserting the gospel, check. Being influenced by Judaizers, check. See, y'all, it hits a little different when you put a name to it, doesn't it? See, this is no longer just the circumcised party. This is no longer just the men from James, but this is our beloved brother and trusted apostle, Peter. So I love that Paul doesn't leave him in this place. Look at verse 15, he continues. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, in other words, Paul is looking back. He's reflecting back on what just happened, and he's saying, Peter, you know He's saying, you and I both, we know, contrary to what these dudes from Jerusalem are saying, we know what's true about the gospel. He's saying, we are not, big theological word here, justified, which just means to be made right through the works of the law. He says, we are justified through faith in Jesus. If this is how you and I and who are part of the chosen people of God are saved, then this also extends to the Gentiles. He says we didn't have to work for it. There's nothing that we have done. We actually had to move away from those things. No, like we didn't have to work for it. We couldn't learn it and neither do or did they. And in verse 17, he's answering a common rebuttal. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is, this, is Christ then a servant of sin? Fair question. See, one of the hardest things to comprehend about the Christian life is that we are simultaneously fully saved, fully forgiven, fully risen with Christ right now, but also still subject to the body and still subject to sin. And it presents this type of paradox for us. 
that warrants this question right here. Hey, if I'm justified in Christ, but I still sin, does that make Jesus a servant of sin? And I love Paul's response. He says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, a sinner. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Listen, Rudy last week did a phenomenal job unpacking our relationship with the law. So I'm not going to do that for us here today, but I do want to show us this dichotomy for us really quick. Listen, the law is something that shows us our inability, but Christ became our ability. The law enslaves, but Christ freeze. The law reflects our sin, but Christ absorbs our sin. The law shows how we fall short and condemns, but Christ shows us where we fall short and he saves us. Listen, the law is not obsolete. It's just incapable of salvation. It was never meant to save us and was meant to point us to the one who can. See, Paul says, for through the law we die, but through Christ we live. Verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Listen, Doxa, the gospel doesn't get any clearer than this. But... We could know this gospel. We can believe in this gospel. We can even preach this gospel, and yet our lives communicate something different. Uh, we could give the clearest gospel presentation ever and have all the gospel conversations, have them wherever you want, over coffee, over lunch, whatever it is, while still living lives that tell a completely different story. Like, this is what we see here. This is Peter in the text. He knew the gospel and he preached it, and yet he needed a strong encounter with Paul to help the gospel move from his head where he had all this gospel intellect to his heart where he could have deeper gospel transformation. Now, this is the main point for the morning. A commitment to the preserved gospel preserves gospel unity. See, this is what the gospel tells us. That a holy God has reconciled with sinful men through the finished and the redemptive work of Jesus. And if this is true, then this is also true that the church now exists to be and to unleash people to be the living proof of that gospel message. And y'all, we got to know this isn't just my conviction, right? This isn't just the message of Paul either, but this is the grand overarching story that God has been writing from Genesis to Revelation. All the way from the promise of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when God promised Abraham that he would be the father of what? Many nations. All through the act of working to redeem his people as he's bringing people into his family, Jew and Gentile alike. All the way to the birth of Jesus in the Gospels, we see Jesus stepping on the scene, not only preaching repent and believe to the Jews, but also repent and believe to the Gentiles. He even reveals himself for the first time as the Messiah to a Gentile woman at the well. We get Paul's letters, we get James's letters, we get, we get John's letters, all here in the New Testament telling us about this narrative. And finally, we get Revelation, Revelation chapters 5 and 7, illustrating this very truth that every nation, a family, tribe, and tongue around the throne room of God. 
Y'all, if you want to know what the gospel is doing, this is what it's doing. It is a beautiful message of salvation by grace through faith in order to create a beautiful, diverse family of believers. And right now, the church is responsible for being a gospel outpost, a sign pointing to this reality of the kingdom of God to showcase the living proof of this gospel message, a beautiful, diverse family, a united people in Christ despite our differences. Y'all, the world needs to see this. The world's begging for it. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Laborers who know about the preserved gospel and know that it preserves unity. The world is looking for it. The world needs to see a church united in Christ despite our differences. If we want them to know we actually believe salvation is by grace through faith. Y'all, how can we proclaim a gospel that says God bridged the gap between death and life, but live a gospel that says he can't bridge the gap between me and you? Or you and them, or him and her? And to be clear, when I say unity, it's important to unpack it. I don't mean uniformity. Right? The difference is this in a word, right? Unity is to oneness as uniformity is to sameness, <laughs> See, sameness denies any distinction in identity, and then it just kind of forces you into this status quo. But oneness, oneness acknowledges distinction in identity, but rallies around a common purpose. See, unity in Christ is taking people who are different in background, who are different in culture and color, and creating, uniting us by the blood of Christ, distinct people making up one family rallying around one person, Jesus Y'all, unity is the most powerful apologetic for the Christian faith. If we want to see unity manifested in our churches, if we want to see unity manifested in our lives, I want to give us just two handlebars to hold on to. The first thing it's going to take is a radical shift in identity. Now, I think one of the devil's biggest playgrounds on the Christian in our day is our identity. Satan has a full-on assault on who you think you are in Christ. He wants to replace it with anything and everything under the sun. We want to create so many monikers that we place in front of us being a Christian. We want to put, hey, we are a black Christian. We are a white Christian. We are a Republican Christian. We are a Democrat Christian, suburban Christian, urban Christian, whatever it might be. We want to place these monikers in front of who we are in Christ. But Christ comes and says, hey, I shatter all that. You are not primarily these monikers you put in front of my name. You are primarily mine. And if we're primarily his, it shifts everything about us. We need to have a radical shift in identity. And the second thing is this, we need to have a radical commitment to one another. Matt, you can come up. I'm about to close here, but I want to unpack this for us for just a moment. A radical commitment to one another. 
In other words, it's this. We stay at the table. And I want to give light to this because I know this is a hard thing. I know what I'm asking you for when I say this. Because if you're going to stay at the table, this means you're going to commit to stay at the table when you feel uncomfortable. It means you're going to commit to stay at the table when you feel hurt or when you've been hurt there before. You're going to commit to stay at the table when you're not in the majority or you're going to feel you're going to stay at the table when your views aren't always getting heard. See, staying at the table requires something of us. And if you want to know what it's going to require of you, we get the glimpse of it here in Galatians 2, verse 20. We just read it. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Paraphrase this. The thing that's being asked of you is that you die. You have to give it up. We have to exchange the preferred for the preserved. We have to lay down our preferences to pick up our cross so that we can join together in unity. It's going to cost something of us. And we have to understand that Jesus isn't calling us to something that he hasn't already done himself. He's not calling us to something that we have to actually create in and of ourselves. This unity that he calls us to is something that he's already done. He's already purchased it. He was hung high on the cross, split wide, blood running down for this very reason that we may be unified, that we may become one. He's already done it. Doctor, our job is to live into it. He's done it. He's paid it. He's redeemed. He's presented it for us. Now, our job is simply to walk in it. In just a few moments, we're going to remember Jesus' radical commitment to us if he gave himself up for us. He was crucified. He broke his body and he shed his blood for us. But before we do that, I want to invite us just really quickly into a moment of reflection and response. You can bow your head and close your eyes right where you are. Doxa, what if we were a people who were marked by commitment? See, Jesus calls us to a place of unity. This was one of his dying prayers. John 17, that his people become one. He says, I pray for these, and I pray for these even after these, which is you and I, that we become one as we hear the message that his disciples in that time was going to be going to preach. He says, as the people hear this message, would people become one? Would they commit to the unity that I am about to purchase for them on the cross? Doctor, what if we embodied that? What if we became a people who honored Jesus' prayer? What if we became a people marked by commitment? When things get hard and there's inevitable disagreement, when things get hard and there's inevitable discomfort among the family of God, what if instead of leaving, we committed to stay? Maybe you need to think about this. How are you struggling with your commitment to the preserved gospel? 
in promoting disunity instead of unity. See, Peter's story was that he got rebuked by Paul. But he doesn't stay there. Peter would go on to write letters. And in those letters, he would speak of the joined family, a royal priesthood, a people purchased by God. He got it. He could have had one to two responses in that moment. He could have shelled up or he could have opened up. What if in this moment, God is right now calling you to open up? How have you been thinking and speaking the preserved gospel of Christ, but living a preferred one? It's a moment of honesty and confession for you right now. Would you go before God? Would you open your hands? If the scripture is true, then Romans 8, 1 is true, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that's true, that frees you up right now to open your hands, to open up and lay down anything that you prefer. (laughs) Right at the feet of Jesus. Take a moment. confess that we are so prone to a preferred gospel. We are so prone to wander. We're so prone to forget who we are in you. We are so prone to find our identity in other places. We are so prone to disregard your prayer and your call to unity. We are so prone to deny the very thing that you have purchased for us. Although we confess we are comfortable in disunity and uncomfortable in unity. Father, I beg, would you cause your son to be who he says he is? He is the bridge. He is the one who fills the gap, the only one who can the one who can bridge the gap between death and life, the one who can bridge the gap between earth and eternity, the one who can bridge the gap between no and yes, and also the one who can bridge the gap between us. Can we believe that this morning? Would you work that in our hearts? Father, we love you. We praise you. And it's in your son's name that we pray this. Amen.